You're telling me someday, Doc, I'm going to do a real punch right in the nose. Kitty, what kept you? My mail. I never get the mail. All I get is a coat of my hand. Give you. You're wearing number 57. Kitty, honey, what are you thinking of? What would you do if you could become invisible? Kitty, do you feel all right? I feel as though I'm just ready to take the plunge. All right, all right, pay attention. Quit daydreaming. me. I remember, what happened business for your amusement? Every minute wasted means money lost. Every second delay gets a buyer waiting. Eyes front, chin up, shoulders back. Listening to Sassmouth Dames podcast. I'm your host, Megan McGurk. This episode is dedicated to Anna Kaufman, a generous patron and a woman who's been a lifelong fan of classic Hollywood. Thank you, Anna. Virginia Bruce always seemed like she was on the cusp of A list stardom while she was under contract with MGM. After she tired of the studio pecking order, and walked out on her contract, she made a little bee picture that proved to be one of the biggest gems of her career. Universal's The Invisible Woman uses science fiction as a vehicle for satire. Under a cloak of invisibility, Virginia's character can spoof the inequalities of the workplace and sexual double, double standards for women. On the clock or while dating, women work twice as hard as men to get a fair shake. Who wouldn't like to get a free pass and kick a piggish boss up the backside or strip off without consequence? And what woman wouldn't like to be invisible when she has to walk home alone at night? Virginia Bruce indulges a fantasy women have about being bodiless, escaping the rules and the baggage that comes with being a woman. Initially, Virginia Bruce had no interest in a screen career. Trained in piano, she had planned to attend UCLA and study music and join a sorority. In 1928, her father gave up his business as an insurance salesman and moved the family from Fargo, North Dakota to Hollywood. One day, Virginia accompanied her aunt, Harriet Miller, who was a dressmaker, to call on a client, Mrs. Marguerite Bodine, wife of Hollywood film director. While discussing the design she ordered, Marguerite was struck by Virginia's pale beauty and mentioned the teenager to her husband as a possible discovery. Bodine offered Virginia a $50,000 contract, $10,000 a year for five years. Virginia's father supervised the terms, becoming her manager. Originally, Bodine wanted to cast Virginia as a new co-star for George O'Brien in a Western. Virginia was ecstatic. 
until Bodine realized she had no experience and really wasn't ready to carry a leading role. Crestfallen, Virginia vowed that she would toughen up, lest her hopes be dashed again. She made her screen debut in Bodine's Fugitives, starring Madge Bellamy and also featuring a young upcomer named Jean Harlow. Virginia's professional career didn't last long with Bodine. He sold her contract to Paramount Studio. Throughout 1929 and 1930, Virginia was given a series of walk-on parts as bit players and quarines. Some were in prestigious productions such as Lubitsch's The Love Parade and Paramount on Parade. In 1930, she had a featured role as one of the four girls in Safety in Numbers, next to Carol Lombard. But in 1930, Paramount dropped Virginia's option, perhaps having more blonde ingenues than they needed. She went over to Sam Goldwyn's studio and joined the cast of Whoopi as one of the Goldwyn girls, along with Paulette Goddard, Anne Southern, and Betty Grable. In a surprising move, Virginia took the opposite course that most young contract players take and left Hollywood for Broadway at the invitation of Florian Ziegfeld. He invited a few of the Golden Girls to join the cast of Smiles, uh, 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 as a way of boasting that he had selected the best new faces in Hollywood for a show. While she worked in New York, Virginia sent half of her $90 a week paycheck home to her family. She avoided formal invitations because she didn't own a winter coat or evening clothes. On one occasion, though, she borrowed a gown to attend ball with a, with a society lad but then had to cancel at the last minute because she realized she didn't have any shoes to go with the gown. Somehow, the rich fellow found out, and he sent over a pair of gold strappy sandals with a card that asked Virginia to accept them instead of a corsage. She went to the ball. After Smiles closed, she joined Ziegfeld's next production, America's Sweetheart. Virginia was cast as a showgirl and an understudy to Inez Courtney. As luck would have it, Virginia's small part was expanded after two other showgirls launched into a violent brawl over how lines would be divided. Although reviews for America's Sweetheart weren't great, critics did praise Adele Astaire and her brother Fred in their dance routine. Adele and Virginia became friends during production. Adele helped create a sort of finishing school for the young actress. Virginia's self-confidence increased as she attended art galleries, museums, concerts, and lectures with her new friend. Virginia learned how to take and give compliments and how to contribute to conversations about the arts. Overall, she reflected that she liked working on broad, better on Broadway over Hollywood. For one, the hours weren't as grueling. Virginia noted that after long hours on a film set, everyone was too tired to go out. But in New York, she noted, there was time for fun and there was time for friendships. Back in Hollywood, while she waited for an interview in Columbia Studio, she was spotted by agent Nat Goldstone, who decided to represent Virginia and quickly arranged a screen test for her in MGM. She made a test with Robert Young, and after that, Virginia took the train to visit old friends in Fargo. She had planned to join the cast of a Broadway show in a dramatic role, but when Metro's front office viewed the test, they liked what they saw and sent for Virginia. She cried and dragged her feet, 
but it was an offer she couldn't refuse. A scene she did for Helldivers in 1931 drew Irving Thalberg's attention. Although the scene was later cut from the production, it led to Virginia being seriously considered for a starring role in Red-Headed Woman. Thalberg set up a series of seven different tests for Virginia. Although the part went to Jean Harlow and made her a star, Virginia was still one of the new contract players under Thalberg's radar. MGM sent Virginia on loan out to Paramount for Skybride, and then to Warner's to play a hard-boiled dame next to James Cagney in Winner Take All. Back in Culver City, waiting for her next assignment, Virginia looked for one of her screen idols on the lot, John Gilbert. It wasn't long before he noticed her and started looking back. Combined, the interest of Jack Gilbert and Irving Thalberg landed Virginia a featured role in Downstairs in 1932. Gilbert developed the original story for a screenplay written by Lenore Coffey. Virginia was thrilled at working with one of the most famous leading men. In the picture, she plays a maid who marries Paul Lukash. On her wedding day, she meets the new chauffeur played by Jack Gilbert. The chauffeur seduces her, but Virginia's role has more depth than just being a part of spoiled innocence. Her character's no fool when she falls for the scoundrel. Instead of being shamed or disgraced for a passionate extramarital tryst, Virginia plays it by standing up to Lukash and telling her husband that he's partly to blame because his lovemaking is so restrained. Virginia's character looks like the essence of sweetness, yet she claims women have the right to sexual pleasure and they don't have to settle for a husband who's a dud in the sack. It's a radical belief for 1932 or 2022. It wasn't long before Virginia's professional relationship with Jack Gilbert turned romantic. Bystanders in the studio noted that Jack took one look at Virginia's big blue eyes and fell madly in love. Yet Jack had this Jekyll and Hyde persona shared by many gifted actors of his generation who struggled with a drink problem. Virginia noted he could be the most charming man, generous, attentive, captivating. He enlarged the scope of her life and showed her a side of elegance and culture she had only previewed as a quarrying in New York. She also fell madly, deeply in love. Not long into their whirlwind romance, Jack proposed and Virginia accepted. Once again, her father intervened as her manager of sorts, this time for a marriage contract, and he negotiated one with Jack Gilbert. Mr. Briggs bargained on his daughter's sexual purity, which he must have wagered was in short supply among Hollywood starlets. Briggs guaranteed his daughter's virginity in exchange for amendments to Jack Gilbert's will that made Virginia and her family beneficiaries. Her father went further and put in a clause for one night with Virginia before the marriage so Gilbert could be sure she was untouched. Gilbert, amused at the old-fashioned terms, accepted the arrangement and had a house built in Toluca Lake for Virginia's parents and her younger brother. Hours after Gilbert received the final divorce decree from Ina Clare, 
he announced his intentions to marry Virginia. Jack's third wife, it should be noted, had been a big star on Broadway. A reporter once asked Ina Clare what it was like to be married to a big star, and Ina replied, why don't you ask Mr. Gilbert? Virginia was in the middle of filming Congo when she received word from Jack that they would be married at 6 o'clock that day in his studio dressing room. Washing the Congo mud off her body minutes before the ceremony, Virginia rushed to the groom's dressing room, where she was greeted by best man Irving Thalberg. Back in Fargo, her former neighbors told the press they were outraged that Virginia became fourth wife to anybody, that it was evidence that Hollywood corrupted. Virginia wore rose-colored glasses and reveled in her new role as Mrs. John Gilbert. She met his inner circle, which included Cedric Gibbons and Dolores Del Rio, Irving Thalberg, and Norma Shearer. Although Gilbert wasn't as popular in Metro as he might have been if other stars and studio officials hadn't been wary of befriending anyone so loathed by Louis B. Mayer. Mayer had put the film star in his crosshairs and vowed to ruin him back in 1926, even if it cost a million dollars. Gilbert had once made a glib remark about women, which offended Mayer, and when Garbo stood him up at the altar, Mayer made insulting remarks that led to Gilbert trying to punch out the studio boss. Gilbert continued to draw a huge salary, half a million dollars a year. He had one of the best bungalows on the lot, but he had no plum roles to keep him going. His transition to sound pictures was a bumpy ride, not because there was anything wrong with his voice, as the Hollywood myth goes. Jack's screen lover image appeared dated to audiences next to the rough leading man that now inhabited the pre-code stars, such as Clark Gable and James Cagney, or those cold society types like Robert Montgomery. In many ways, downstairs seems like a direct reaction to the tough guy leading man. As if Jack says, you want a scoundrel? I'll show you a scoundrel. Shortly after the ceremony, Virginia met with Thalberg in his office and announced her retirement from the film industry. She was only 21 years old. Instead of laughing at her or dismissing her romantic ideals, Irving assured Virginia that she would feel differently in time. She would change her mind. Thalberg didn't accept her resignation and compromised by offering to put her on suspension. That way, she'd be off payroll, but she would still have her contract to resume, which he knew would only be a matter of time. Director Lewis Milestone, who was a friend of Gilbert's, echoed the sentiment of many in the film Colony. He recalled, what was so terribly frustrating about Jack was that everything was still there. He was marvelous looking. He was a splendid actor with a keen, interesting mind. He was a courteous man, a good friend, but inside was this dark, destructive force at work. You couldn't get your hands on it. You couldn't stop it. Then along came Virginia and we all held our breath. As a newlywed, Virginia resolved to be at Jack's disposal and support his efforts at a comeback. When he floundered, she played the wife role and was soon expecting a child. 
When daughter Susan was born, Jack seemed to lose interest in his wife and daughter overnight. He was moody, despondent, and hard to please. Often he lashed out at Virginia and blamed her for his failed career. Several times he ordered her to leave the house. He was outraged at the limited parts he received, until one day Garbo came along and selected him to play the leading role with her in Queen Christina. Suddenly, Jack praised Garbo to anyone who would listen. He crowed about how Garbo had saved him. He was on the upswing of a manic episode, full of enthusiasm for the new thing that might restore his former glory. When it turned out that Queen Christina failed to be the big hit that everyone thought it would be, once again, Jack spiraled into a down cycle of depression. Years later, Virginia recalled what her marriage was like for for, um, Jack's first daughter, Latrice. Afraid of bad publicity or the morals clause in his contract, Jack had largely given up nightlife. He shunned parties and social events in Hollywood. He had done all that years ago, gotten gotten it out of his system. Virginia was more than a decade younger. She wanted to go out and have fun. Morose, Jack would drink alone at home, often staying up all night. Then in the morning, he would attempt to cure the effects of heavy drinking by jumping into a cold swimming pool. Virginia noted that the shock of cold water probably wasn't great for his heart. Gene Fowler's romantic depiction of John Barrymore includes a harrowing tale about the night that Barrymore was called to Gilbert's house in the middle of the night because Gilbert threatened to kill himself. Fowler presents Barrymore as sober sides, the voice of reason. Virginia had already fled from the house that evening because of one of Jack's violent outbursts. Barrymore took Gilbert into the nursery and placed baby Susan in her father's arms and reminded him that he had a child he should be worried about now and not some bad reviews from a film critic. Virginia filed for divorce, which became final in 1934. Although she continued to use her married name and spoke of him with great affection and vowed that no other man could replace him, Jack grew cold and froze her out. He retreated into his cups until Marlena Dietrich rescued him by casting him in Desire, which didn't work out, as I told you about in the last episode on Desire. Virginia hoped that she would have five years on her own to develop personally and professionally. She lived in the Toluca Lake house that Gilbert had built for her parents, with her mother looking after little Susan while she worked in the studio. Virginia devoted her energy to her career because, like it or not, she was expected to not only support herself and Susan, but also her parents, her younger brother, and an uncle who came to live with them with his four kids. After Virginia signed a contract with MGM in 1931, she often seemed to be on the cusp of a big break that would launch her from second tier up to the top tier of stardom. In 1936, she had a standout role in The Great Ziegfeld, playing a diva from the Follies. One of Virginia's best loan-out assignments was in Columbia for Women of Glamour with Melvin Douglas, 
a glorious remake of Ladies of Leisure, the 1930 picture Frank Capra made that was Barbara Stanwyck's star vehicle. In 1937, Virginia had a career boost when she sang Cole Porter's I've Got You Under My Skin and Born to Dance. And in 1938, she starred in a wonderful picture with Mary Astor, a criminally underrated woman against woman about the trials of living in a small town with your husband's ex-wife. Before she left on a location shoot for The Bad Man of Brimstone in 1937, a fortune teller told Virginia that she would fall in love soon and be married in a whirlwind romance. Since she was set to begin working on a Wally Beery picture, Virginia didn't pay much heed to the prediction. The picture's director was J. Walter Rubin. And in no time, they fell in love on location in Utah's Zion National Park. J. Walter Rubin started out as a writer in Hollywood who became a director and then was so-called promoted by Louis B. Mayer to studio producer. Rubin went by the name Jack, but Virginia had a hard time saying that after her doomed marriage with Jack Gilbert, so instead she began to call him Sonny. Sonny was nothing like Jack Gilbert. He was sober, industrious, and cheerful. He wasn't threatened by her past with the great screen lover. He didn't begrudge her memories with her first husband. Nor was he intimidated by her success as a film star. He took an active role in Virginia's career path. Once they were married, they developed a bond by running Virginia's lines together at night until she felt prepared for the next day on set. Sonny gave advice about the way she should approach a role and gave her feedback even on her clothing choices. Virginia had an ally where formerly she felt invisible next to her first husband's problems. In 1939, Virginia had an extended break from work in Metro. While she busied herself around the new house she and her husband Sonny bought in Pacific Palisades, she noticed that a new contract player such as Greer Garson, Hetty Lamar, and Lana Turner seemed to be getting the kind of star buildup that she never had, but it was always promised. Virginia had a serious talk with Sonny, She told a reporter, when a man takes a vital interest in a woman's problems, that's love. Sonny wasn't a company man who told his wife to settle for what they gave her. It looked as though opportunities were drying up, competition was fierce, and Virginia didn't want to play the studio game. Virginia referred to the last picture she did in Metro as Waters of Oblivion. The studio did give her top billing in what would be her last picture for Metro. It was Stronger Than Desire, from 1939, a remake of Evelyn Prentice, next to Walter Pigeon. Virginia shared the same fate in MGM as Rosalind Russell, who was held back as a second stringer for Myrna Loy in Louis B. Mayer's Pecking Order, which I told you about back in episode 49. Like Roz, Virginia opted out of a contract, preferring to leave rather than accept the limited roles the studio offered. In an interview, Virginia explained that she hired a new agent who helped restore her confidence. After she received a release from her contract with MGM, Virginia went freelance in 1940. She signed a two-picture deal with Warners, 
filling in for Olivia de Havilland and Anne Sheridan, who both turned down flight angels. Then she went into The Man Who Talked Too Much, a remake of the pre-code gem The Mouthpiece, now starring George Brent. In September 1940, Virginia grieved a miscarriage. The following month, she signed for The Invisible Woman at Universal. Columnists predicted trouble ahead for the production. The very idea that a woman would be naked on screen, even if she remained invisible, would inflame the censors in the Production Code Administration office. Advanced publicity teased an audience's imagination, which served as a primary component in the whole invisibility franchise. The Invisible Woman was an original story by Kurt Siodmak, younger brother of director Robert Siodmak, who wrote the, the second generation of universal horror classics. That's Kurt who did that, by the way, if that sentence was as crappy as I think it is. In Berlin, Kurt had toiled as a newspaper man, novelist, and screenwriter. He escaped Nazi Germany and settled in Hollywood under contract with Paramount in 1936. Kurt wrote the Dorothy L'Amour pictures, uh, sarong pictures, like Her Jungle Love, for $3.50 a week, most of which he sent to his wife, who waited to join him in England. After Paramount dropped his option, he was at loose ends for almost a year before he landed in Universal. Siodmak was invited by an old friend, fellow German emigre, director and producer Joe May, to write The Return of the Invisible Man. In Universal, Siodmak fell into a niche writing what the studio considered horror pictures, but what he viewed more along the lines of fairy tales. Siodmak's pictures were part science fiction, part political allegory. Themes about displacement and alienation reoccur in his screenplays. The Return of the Invisible Man did well at the box office. Siodmak envisioned the plot as a commentary on the corruptive nature of power. He followed that up with The Invisible Agent, a story about an American spy in Nazi Germany. The picture lent itself as a vehicle to showcase the brutality of the Nazi regime. The Invisible Agent also did well at the box office, which was followed with what was considered a light comedy, The Invisible Woman. Kurt wrote the treatment for the script that was developed by Robert Lees, Frederick Ronaldo, and Gertrude Purcell. For the third picture in his trilogy, Siodmak borrowed a scene from his childhood for the opening title credit sequence, where a woman, shot in silhouette, sits at a dressing table, brushing her hair. In his memoir, Siodmak recalled that when he was 10 years old on holiday with his family in a little village by the Baltic Sea, one night he walked down a dark street and he came upon a window where a naked woman was sitting in front of the window brushing her hair at a mirror. He was mesmerized by the sight of her luminous skin. It was the first time he had ever seen a naked woman. Ashamed, he averted his eyes. But each night after that, he returned to the same window, looking for her to reappear. He noted, to see while not being visible always was a part of sexual excitement. Kurt's boyhood memory underpins the power of suggestion that makes the picture a standout. 
Think about how Claude Rains needed to wear so much in James Whale's picture of the Invisible Man from 1933. Claude Rains gives his colleague a shopping list of items when he calls unexpectedly one night. He needs bandages, dark glasses, gloves, pajamas, a dressing gown, slippers. In the opening scene of The Invisible Man, he even wore a false nose and a wig to show villagers he was a man. But all Virginia needs in The Invisible Woman is a pair of silk stockings to convince a rich playboy, played by John Howard, that she's all woman. Unlike Claude Rains, Virginia Bruce does not become a psychopath who wants the world to kneel. Instead, her version of invisibility produces a kind of leveling effect. The doctor serum and gamma rays allow Virginia to experience gender social equality. For the first time, she can know what it's like to be a person rather than a woman. Embedded in this little farcical tale is a strong critique of workplace exploitation and sexual double standards. In the early scenes as Kitty Carroll, Virginia Bruce has a job as a mannequin in the Continental Dress Company, a wholesale outfit where she models gowns for department store buyers. The mannequins are overworked, underpaid, treated poorly, and unfairly dismissed. Kitty Carroll hates her job. She's offered to be a guinea pig to a mad scientist who claims to have a formula for invisibility. He is Professor Gibbs, played by John Barrymore. In work one morning, having arrived two minutes late, she's fined an hour's wages from the irascible manager, Mr. Growley, played by the lovely Charles Lane. Lane barks orders at the women, giving them the old fat cat line about how time is money. They are a little more than trained puppets on a string to the man in charge. Kitty finds the wages impossible to live on. At $16.50 a week, she can't pay rent, and everything she wears belongs to her roommate except for the shoes on her feet. Listening to abuse from Mr. Growley, Kitty wonders what she would do with a gift of invisibility. Kitty's plans are not grandiose. Rather than dream about robbing a bank, a jeweler, a furrier, or taking over the world, Kitty settles on a plan to kick her boss right in the pants. Once invisible, thanks to a shot in the arm from John Barrymore, Kitty goes on a rampage in the Continental Dress Company, and it's fabulous, a standout bit of fantasy fulfillment for working women. She dons the numbers 37 dinner dress and swans around a showroom, a headless phantom to terrify the snobby ladies who buy the stock for fancy department shops. In Mr. Growley's office, she doles out advice to reform while she closes the window on his head and delivers three swift kicks to his backside. In a parting bid on the way out, she socks the dreaded time clock. Having delivered a spirited protest for workers' rights, Virginia sails out of the shop. When she later returns in visible form, she's delighted to find the boss has seen the light, even if he thinks it was a message from God and not a browbeaten mannequin. If women's work is undervalued, their stock on the dating market is even lower, according to the playboy in the picture. 
The audience knows this right away from when the character John Howard plays Richard Russell is introduced. He's flat broke after yet another heart bomb suit. The top of his piano is a collection of women's glossy headshots and frames lined up like tombstones in love's graveyard. Women are pretty much interchangeable to Richard until he meets the invisible woman. When he cannot see Kitty, he has to listen to her. Richard cracks crude jokes about how she must be unattractive because only a homely woman would want to be invisible. He assumes women want to be looked at all the time. Kitty uses logic to point out that her clothes, which she has discarded and, you know, disrobed before entering the mountain cabin, are the size and shape of an attractive woman. She gives him enough indication of her proportions by rolling a pair of silk stockings up her long legs. Early in in this part of their relationship, Richard can only think of her body even when he can't see it. The invisible woman offers such a compelling fantasy. Without a body, Kitty experiences freedom. She can get even with a man. She can strip naked, prance around, drink too much and not worry about being attacked. She can fight men and win. What does a bodiless woman want besides kicking her boss in the pants? She wants a man to love her for who she is, not because she's a hot blonde. Inventive sight gags carry out the fantasy. A dangling cigarette here, a brandy snifter that floats in the air over there. An impression that puts her naked on a bearskin rug. Siodmak developed a close working relationship with John Fulton, the director of special effects in Universal's um, department. They had an ongoing challenge during production. Over the three films they made together, Fulton would drop by Siodmak's office and say, what trick have you concocted in your twisted mind which you believe I cannot do? And Siodmak would describe what the audience should see on a camera as whatever way to make something invisible. Fulton would figure out something after he let loose a string of profanity. He'd go back to his department and see how they could get it done. During production, Fulton had a body double for Virginia who was costumed in black velvet, a a unitard and a hood, and that he would shoot her against a black background to give the illusion of invisibility. Virginia then would be off camera reading her lines. For scenes that didn't require the full blackout suit, Virginia donned a hood and gloves to emphasize her form such as the one where she appears in the dinner dress number 37 for the lady buyers in the Continental Dress Company. In addition to creating special effects for invisibility, Fulton also had a dozen women who would remove parts of each frame by careful hand painting, a process that took months to achieve. What was not possible in the studio might be fulfilled in the lab. There was another use for special effects on the set that was unrelated to invisibility. Siodmak recalled that Fulton devised a way to make John Barrymore look sober. On set, they rigged Barrymore with invisible wires to keep him from swaying in his close-ups. The director, Eddie Sutherland, 
also devised cue cards on the stair banister for Barrymore in one scene, or cue cards on the floor or furniture or strategic locations just off camera in other scenes. Even though Barrymore's alcoholism was slowly killing him, his gifts as an actor were formidable. Some critics felt he delivered an inspired impression of his brother Lionel, but he's not shouty like the older Barrymore. John waggles his eyebrows and rings every line for laughs when it's called for. In one scene, he clowns around with a house cat. He attempts to scare it off, a vast avant, and then improvises a little bit from Hamlet, telling the cat in a Shakespearean tenor, thy bones are marrowless. Disembodied, Kitty Carroll gets a chance to see how the other half lives. She settles scores, has fun, and clobbers a bunch of gangsters. Plus, she has a man at her feet before he even knows what she looks like. And always, there's a get-out-of-jail-free card, as Barrymore's professor tells her, when you dissipate, you disappear. With a few drinks, she can shuffle off her feminine coil. In October 1940, the month she started working on The Invisible Woman, Silver Screen Magazine published an interview with Virginia that she gave to Gladys Hall under the headline, Marriage is Not Enough. In an earnest polemic, Virginia explained that she did not consider herself a careerist for the reasons other women usually usually gave in interviews. Virginia assured The Hollywood Reporter that she was not unfulfilled, She was not bored at home looking for something to do with her time, nor was it because she liked nice things or had a family depending on her income. She was not overly ambitious or any sort of go-getter. She didn't have much fight in her either. Virginia explained her need for work on another level. She thought about the time when, as a new bride, she had met with Irving Thalberg in his office and announced she was now going to be quitting her career and devote herself to becoming wife and mother, and Irving had counseled the young star not to make any rash decisions. The pattern has changed, she noticed. The loom is bigger. Our capacity for living has so enlarged that nothing is enough short of everything. We've got to use every thread in the pattern. The individual is just one thread in the pattern. And as the pattern goes, the thread goes. That's why marriage, whether it's made in heaven or Hollywood, is not enough. In 1942, after five years of happy marriage, Virginia lost J. Walter Rubin. He died of heart failure as a result of chronic stress and fatigue. Working as producer on Mayer's pet project, Tennessee Johnson, was just too much for Sonny. The period picture was a slew of trouble. It whitewashed history and sparked protests from black Americans and left-leaning figures in Hollywood. But that's another story. Virginia grieved for two years over Sonny's death. The following books helped me to write the episode. Virginia Bruce, Under My Skin by Scott O'Brien. Goodnight Sweet Prince by Gene Fowler. Wolfman's Maker, Memoir of a Hollywood Screenwriter. 
by Kurt Siodmak. Storyline, Recollections of a Hollywood Screenwriter by Lenore Coffey. Thanks for listening. Join me next time for a look at Loretta Young's work under contract with Columbia Studio in the 1940s. If you're enjoying the podcast, why not leave a nice review on iTunes or social media? Thanks for listening.